Hello, welcome again to the Asian Education Podcast. I'm Edward Vickers at Kyushu University in Japan, and the podcast is brought to you as usual by the UNESCO Chair at Kyushu University in association with the Comparative Education Society of Asia. And today I'm very happy to be joined online by Professor Fazal Rizvi of the University of Melbourne. Professor Rizvi is a very distinguished uh, scholar of education who's worked extensively on issues of identity and culture as they relate to education in, in transnational contexts. He's written particularly uh, in recent years on globalization. He's written the book Globalizing Education Policy, which was recently reissued as Reimagining Globalization and Education. Uh, and, and that's a book that's available from Routledge. Now, Professor Rizvi is originally from South Asia, but he's in his scholarly work, he's not primarily on South Asia. But in recent years, he's done a certain amount of work on higher education in India and recently on the topic that we're going to be discussing today, which is uh, education reform in Bhutan. So, Professor Rizvi, thanks very much for joining us. And perhaps we should start, uh, or, or perhaps I can start by asking you to explain sort of how you came to be working on Bhutan or with um, colleagues in Bhutan. Well, uh, thank you, Ed, for giving me this opportunity to discuss uh, Bhutan and Bhutanese educational reforms. Uh, it really is quite interesting uh, experiment that they are pursuing, and I'll say a little bit more about that. Not only its achievements, but also some of the challenges that they have confronted um, over the years. Uh, uh, um, I was myself born in India but uh, moved to Australia at the age of uh, uh, 15 um, and have lived most of my life in, in, uh, in Australia, although I did my postgraduate studies in England, in Manchester and in London, but I also worked in the United States for 10 years at the University of Illinois. So I really truly call myself a, a kind of a global scholar, not only because I work on issues of globalization, but also because I have traversed and moved around a great deal uh, I've done quite a little bit of work in Malaysia and Singapore and also in uh, in Finland, um, uh, where I'm visiting professor at the University of Turku and also in South Africa. So I, wow. I travel around. So, so, so as former British Prime Minister Theresa May put it, you're a citizen of the world, which uh, means you're a citizen of nowhere. Nowhere. Like Absolutely. me, perhaps, in fact. <laughs> I think some people say that to me about myself, you know, but uh, uh, other people call me peripatetic professor. Oh, that's nice. You know, so <laughs> as a result, I moved around and all the um, Bhutan. Well, about three and a half years ago, uh, uh, in 2021, as uh, COVID situation was getting worse uh, and people were not traveling around the place, rather unexpectedly, I got a, a an email from uh, a person in Bhutan asking me whether I'd be interested in doing some work on a major reform that they had been working on since uh, for, for around 10 years, starting in 2013. Okay, and uh, they were looking at uh, extending it and transitioning this particular experiment that was located on one particular school to the rest of the country. Uh, they had been given permission to explore its possibilities. So they they wanted a global scholar. Um, and I said, yes, I'd be happy to do that. I had never been to Bhutan. I have never done any work on Bhutan, but I'm prepared to learn. And I think I'm a pretty quick learner. Uh, and but the tr trouble, of course, is that I cannot visit Bhutan because of uh, of uh, of COVID. Uh, they said, mm. "Well, uh, there are certain ways that uh, we'd be happy to work with you online. Uh, you can do interviews, and you can have uh, various uh, various uh, forums and uh, various uh, uh, group discussions. Uh, and as a result, uh, we will send you papers, and uh, you can actually have a look at uh, all the data that we have collected and provide." A commentary because we, we we want somebody who has a critical mind and who can sort of say this is interesting but this is not this will work but this will not and here is your aspirations but those aspirations have not stayed true to what they had intended to do, but had deviated somewhat. So basically, they gave me a fairly free range um, uh, brief to go about and identify issues and write short papers. And I said, well, I'm happy to do that. So what I started doing 
was every Wednesday and every 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 Friday, I started interviewing people with the assistance of a wonderful research assistant. She would line up for me certain interviews with people that we've identified at various colleges, parents, civil servants, ministry people, school people, teachers, students, whoever we could get a hold of to talk about this particular experiment. Mm. Uh, and as a result, every, every, every month, we would write a discussion paper of around five to six pages long. Okay, uh, that would go to the school and the school would consider it and that would be the basis of their discussions. And the following week, sometimes they would mention the paper that I had written and how and what I might have got wrong or what might have got right and what needed further work. Mm. So I've been doing that for around uh, two and a half years now uh, without ever having the, having had the opportunity to go. No, to, well, that's a, that's a fascinating COVID project. I mean, many of us have had COVID projects of one sort or another, but um, yeah. rather few of them have involved Bhutan, I suspect. But, but, oh, but, that's true. I mean, but, their technology is very good, actually. Mm. Remarkably, there have been very few glitches uh, as far mm. as uh, links have been concerned. Uh, they've been glitched on part of Australia, but not on part of Bhutan. <laughs> so I don't know what it is, but Bhutan has got a very good uh, system of uh, of technology, and they're using well, it quite extensively too. So uh, the Bhutanese diaspora is expanding and expanding mm. very rapidly. Mm. There are something of the order of uh, twenty thousand Bhutanese now living in Australia, which is a very large number for a country yes. that only has a population of eight hundred fifty thousand. Okay, mm. but uh, and of course they've got their Bhutanese diaspora elsewhere as well. Uh, um, mm. So so and these but di diaspora are very closely linked to Bhutan, and the conversations that they have mm. are regular, uh, they're spontaneous, and they're genuine. You know, uh, it's not mm. simply uh, what's the weather weather like. They're quite involved in uh, what what is going on. Well, the Bhutan-Australia connection is intriguing, and that's something we might come back to uh, in a bit. Um, but, I mean, if we just step back a moment and, and yes. perhaps start by discussing, uh, you know, what this discussion of education reform in Bhutan right. uh, uh, emerged out of, you know, what were the yeah. concerns? I mean, because I suppose for most of us who have not been to Bhutan, and maybe this applied to you before you were approached two and a half years ago, uh, I, I think our understanding of Bhutan tends to be a little bit um, vague, shall we say. I mean, it's not an easy country to get to. Uh, if anyone knows anything about Bhutan, they probably know, or certainly in, in, in our world anyway, uh, they maybe have, have heard of the 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 what is it the gross gross happiness, happiness index index yeah. uh, which has been much touted by politicians um, often on the right in the West yeah. who who don't want to talk about structural reform but um, sure. would would like us all to that feel better about things as they are so gross happiness index and 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 of course it's 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 difficult to travel to as a tourist but if we sure. And I've I've met people who've been there as tourists, and all of them seem to have had a wonderful time. Sure. So you know, maybe there's an image that many people have of Bhutan as a somewhat remote, but also somewhat idyllic Shangri-La up there in the in the Himalayas. Mm -hmm. um, but um, as I've been uh, reading in my sort of superficial, rather superficial readings about Bhutan in preparation for this interview. Um, in some ways, it's perhaps not as happy a place as we might imagine it to be. There are certain certain tensions there in society and oh. issues with the education system. So, I mean, so, what when you were approached to contribute to the the yeah. discussions over education reform, how are these? Problems or well, tests. I mean, I had exactly the same uh, set of uh, perceptions uh, and imaginaries mm. as you yes. have just described, you know, idyllic place, Shangri-La and all those sort of things. And just about all the literature that I was reading in the first few months uh, actually were simply re reaffirming those uh, those idyllic uh, perceptions, you know. And as a result, uh, uh, I was finding it difficult to actually encounter huge amount of critical let literature. It was there, but you had to dig deep. You know, uh, and now I know quite a few critics uh, and quite a few people. 
The other thing that I want to say is uh, 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 Bhutan is indeed a very difficult place to get to. It's very remote and uh, it's got an airport that's very dodgy at best uh, and is very difficult to get in, uh, get, uh, fly into, you know, mm. and there are only something like 10 pilots who have the capacity to fly into that airport at Paro, which is a little place uh, mm. in the center of Bhutan. Um, uh, and it's a very difficult place to move around in. The roads are not all that good and... Uh, um, et cetera, et cetera, you know, and uh, as a result, uh, unless you are really interested in woodlands and uh, and uh, and forests and uh, hiking and mountaineering and all those sort of things, Bhutan is not uh, going to be on top of your uh, tourism list. Uh, you know, the other thing that is also worth talking about is while uh, gross happiness index is widely talked about uh, in the West, within mm. Bhutan, it does not have as much purchase. OK, it does not uh, get uh, people's uh, uh, excited. Uh, mm. So there are some people who sort of saying, please don't talk to me about gross happiness index. That's um, interesting. And, 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 and I mean, why yeah. do you think that is? Well, I because people actually uh, who meet from overseas who meet them. Uh, mm. Expect these people to be happiness. Why, there aren't are certain expect <laughs> they're, they're, why aren't you happy? That's right. You know, sort of saying it has set up uh, expectations that are not really all mm. that uh, all that helpful to us, uh, and they have prevented us from pursuing structural reform, just as you've uh, mentioned. Yes. You know, so I guess and, if you if you're a member of the political opposition in Bhutan, perhaps you're standing up for the right to be miserable. Well, they don't quite go that far, no. but uh, nonetheless, uh, they, they certainly think. Uh, it, so I think what they've settled upon is trying to use the notion of, uh, of, uh, of happiness as an aspirational idea mm. rather than as an empirical fact. If you know what I mean. Yes. So, yes. so basically, they're looking at yes, uh, I, there is nothing wrong with aspiring to happiness, uh, and we mm. need to actually challenge the government to say, what is it that you are making our lives happier than mm. it was, you know, before? Mm. And what have you done? And what changes are necessary to make us happier? So in other words, the critical scholars have begun to use the term happiness, but not in the ways in which uh, it is a substitute to gross national product, uh, as was conceived, but now much more of a, mm. of a, of a concept that... Uh, is uh, designed to actually say to people that this is one of the things that we absolutely have to aspire to. So as a result, uh, they have actually started using a very Buddhist concept uh, of joy quite a bit. Right. Uh, so uh, yes. one of the things that uh, they're very keen on is uh, trying to bring joy and discipline together as two different notions. Mm. How can you be disciplined and joyful at the same time? And what is the dialectical relationship between a disciplined life that might contribute to joyous experiences of learning and of life and vice versa? And how can joy can contribute to you being much more disciplined? Yes. This is a very interesting concept. Uh, and I have thought about it quite a lot in relation to political philosophy as to how it is that uh, you're trying to bring a relatively uh, a traditional conservative concept of, of discipline, uh, if you like, order, uh, mm -hmm. you know, with the concept of joy, happiness, uh, you know, how that is being worked together, both in uh, social policy and cultural policy, but more importantly, educational policy has become an issue that I'm thinking about quite a bit nowadays. Yeah. And, and I've written one or two short papers on that, trying to understand mm trying to get them to reflect a little more seriously on the complex relationship between joy and uh, and discipline. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. So, but I mean, from what you're saying, there there is, uh, to, at least to a certain extent, a, a debate going on within Bhutan about what we mean when we talk about happiness. Uh, this, as you said, the, the sort of more Buddhist concept of joy, uh, and I suppose what 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 they're getting at there, or people who talk about joy or happiness in those terms is the idea that that there is a you know some distinct ethical content yeah, uh, yeah. to uh happiness or joy as an aspiration um i think that's it's, it's that's about really more what than I... simply sort of you know sensory fulfillment or um you know superficial um pleasure 
No, no. But I mean, there's quite a lot of uh, many, many scholars, both Buddhists as well as non-Buddhists, the secular ones uh, in Bhutan, who have actually been thinking about that question as to the ways in which uh, uh, joy is not simply sensory, you know, or mm. or a moment of greater uh, contentment. Uh, it is a much bigger uh, concept of social contentment and uh, and the ways in which uh, communities might come together to feel that they are being supported um, and they are they 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 have uh, a reason to feel uh, fulfilled, if you like, mm. uh, and. Uh, feel that uh, they are becoming people of substance in their joy. Mm. I mean, so when uh, joy or happiness, however it's <laughs> described, is is discussed as as or, or held up as the the aspiration or the goal to which public <laughs> policy in Bhutan should be heading, uh, to what extent is that connected to a sense of, or an acknowledgement of the importance of political agency. Um, well, and I, I, I was reading something earlier. Uh, I think it was the ministerial statement launching the education yeah. form initiative in early 2001. Uh, sorry, not yeah. 2001, 2021. 2021, yeah. Kasha, Kasha it's called. That's it. It's, the, uh, it's, the, it's, the, it's basically it's the Prime Minister's uh, National Day speech. Right. So that statement, interestingly, or at least I thought this was interesting, <laughs> contains uh, a section where the, the prime minister says, well, you know, we, we're working towards fuller democratization and we mm -hmm. recognize that this is important. But, you know, it's not the only important thing. Other things are important, sure. uh, including or in particular education reform. Sure. Uh, and so when and, and the goals that were set out in that speech for education reform, to me at least, seemed really quite conventional uh, and, 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 and in, a, in a way quite neoliberal. I mean, uh, although that's a rather loose and derogatory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Perhaps. I follow but, but, what you mean. But I mean, he's, he's talking a lot about employment uh, sure. and the need to for education reform to uh, align the, the, mm -hmm. the, the, the sort of uh, operation of the education system more closely with the needs of the labor market, which yeah. uh, is clearly important for Bhutan, given the extent of youth unemployment. It's around 30%. Yeah, a huge problem, which I hadn't previously realized. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. but he seemed in that speech, at least, to be sort of parking the issue of sure. political reform um, and saying, well, education reform, you know, and education reform aligned to the needs of the economy is the priority. Um, I, I think that was a very political speech. Okay, hmm. uh, it was designed to get people thinking about certain things. Okay, but it was also something that actually was uh, uh, kind of uh, uh, kind of uh, being complicit, if you like, uh, or, or 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 trying to keep many many different constituents constituencies happy. So the corporate sector, the foreign direct investment sector, you know, the local sector, the, the critical sector, the young people, etc. etc. Mm. So as a result, uh, it was a combination of many different languages. It was an assemblage, to use the term that people are now using so widely, an assemblage of a very, very strange kind. It was right. a, it was it was a it was a it was a soup, if you like. Uh, An ideological had, pick and mix. Um, uh, that's a good term to use, actually. And I think that was that was it. Uh, but in order to understand that speech, can I actually go back a little bit uh, sure. and give you something of the history? Now, mm. you, the Bhutanese education system was largely driven until 100 years ago by, by, by the monasteries. Monasteries were incredibly influential. That's where education took place, basically. Well, that, that's like Tibet. I mean, we're basically that's like Tibet. With Tibet. No different to society. Tibet. Uh, but uh, so the the first uh, uh, the 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 great grandfather of the current king is the one who introduced modern education. But uh, in order to do that, he relied very heavily on importing Indian teachers and Indian systems of education. So for a long, long time, uh, the the Bhutanese education was uh, a derivative of the British 
which was derivative of the Indians, which was derivative of the Delhi type Indians, not the South Indians, if you know what I mean. So as a result, uh, it was it was kind of like a refraction upon refraction upon refraction. Yeah. I mean, well, one thing I, I was reading earlier noted that one of the two, I think, British, India-based British educators who were invited in 100 years ago by the, yeah, the Chinese time. king was Dr. Graham from Kalimpong. Uh, That's right. Exactly. Uh, who, who I presume is the founder of the, the, this this big private school in Kalimpong called Dr. Graham's Homes, which uh, the precisely your past precisely. I mean, my, my 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 um my brothers two stepdaughters attended that school. Right. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, many people, of course, uh, do not actually see the system mm. that Bhutan inherited until the 1980s when they started to indigenize it. Mm. Uh, they they see it not as a British system but as an Indian system, despite the fact that it was uh, started off by 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 these uh, British guys who from Kalimpong who mm. was uh, who were who were basically representing Indian system of education rather than the British system of education. So although the uh, the people who articulated this to the king and the, his uh, his ministry were were thought that, were were talking to a British person, the, they were they were actually speaking on behalf of the colonial Indian system, mm. and mm. that system remained in place until the mid. 80s and until the mid 80s much of the education many of the teachers something of the order of 90% of the teachers in uh, in uh, in 1960s were indian imports and as a result uh, the indians have made a huge impact on uh, historically on, wow. on 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 the education system so so when you say they're indian imports they were actually indian teachers not just teachers trained in india but but teachers from india from India, they were brought in specifically because there were there was no teachers' college in uh, in Bhutan until the 1960s. There were no co- schools in it, you know, so there were not very many Bhutanese who were teachers, except for the monastery teachers, of course. But the for the modern system, they were they were they were they were not uh, required. So basically, what they did was to actually bring in these Indian teachers. Uh, um, who at one time were given salaries that were better than they would have got in Faisabad or in Gorakhpur or in Darjeeling or whatever. Right. You know? So as a result, uh, uh, there was a huge incentive for them to go and uh, and start off schools. And many of these Indian teachers were perfectly happy to go to the remotest parts of uh, of of, uh, of India of Bhutan to set up his schools, you know. So in many ways, uh, the Indians are the major architects of Bhutanese education system as it exists now. Mm. Uh, and as a, and Bhutanese government itself recognizes that fact and honors that fact, but also mm. regards it as problematic, both well, that, at the that, same time. That's, that's interesting. I mean, so... I, 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 think, I suppose it's probably fair to say that that system has... You know, can claim to have had certain achievements, and and uh, you know, at least judging by the statistics, the the sort of spread of literacy in Bhutan oh. uh, uh, by the early years of this century, at least, seems to compare well. Spectacular! Yeah. They uh, in the nineteen uh, in in the nineteen seventies, literacy rates were around. Oh, sorry, literacy rates were around twenty five, twenty six percent. They have gone up uh, by by by. 2016 to 76% and now around 90%. And so that's a trajectory that many regions of India would view with envy, right? Oh, absolutely. Um, In, India has not been able to do that in most parts of even Kerala, uh, which mm. is regarded as the place success which story. has the, the yeah. success story, has not been as successful as Bhutan. And Bhutan has done it in less than 40 years. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, what's enabled Bhutan to you know, score such a notable success, at least in in terms of, you know, the spread of basic skills, literacy, numeracy, and so forth? (laughs) Well, I mean, that's something that I've thought about a great deal. I mean, one flippant answer is there's very little else to do in Bhutan, you know, so education comes as as something of a joyous uh, intervention. (laughs) Well, uh, also, as you just mentioned, uh, the Bhutanese government was able to offer all these Indian yeah, teachers yeah, coming yeah, in yeah. in earlier and, years uh, higher salaries than they could get in many parts of India. 
Uh, so and that they, surely must be a significant... And, and they, they invested very heavily in building schools, and schools are largely of good quality, much so better quality. Than why were they, they able to do that? Or able well, to, much of willing. the money came from international organisations. So mm. ADB, for example, you know, has invested very heavily um, and has continued to invest heavily. The World Bank has invested heavily without the structural adjustment requirements. And that is because there was nothing to do with structural adjustment on. You know, the system was monarchy. You know, so as a mm. result, uh, you know, the neoliberal system that now exists uh, is still exists against the backdrop of uh, a fairly heavy hand of the monarch, you know, of the king. And and but do you think sort of Bhutan's strategic position uh, is relevant here? I mean that these international organisations well, are willing to invest. Certainly after sixty one, which mm. is the time when there was a war between India and Pakistan in Sikkim, as you know, you know, mm. uh, after that the Indian government all of a sudden became absolutely conscious of Bhutan's strategic geopolitical position and started throwing in a huge amount of money. And indeed, many of these teachers who were employed at in Bhutan were given Bhutanese salaries, but they were actually paid by mm. the Indian Department of Education or Indian Department of External Affairs. Interesting. So in, other, in, yeah. other, in other words, there's a very complicated relationship. Mm. So India was doing its best to ward off the influence of China. In the well, well, sorry, yeah, China. You you said sort of India, Pakistan. It was India, China. Uh, India, China. In I'm talking about. I'm in, not talking about region. India, Pakistan. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm the the war in Sikkim is India, India, China. India, war. China. Yeah. 1961. And, you know. and, and border and, clashes in neighboring Arunachal Pradesh. And they they have they have continued uh, mm. to this day, you know. And there is a huge amount of tension in that part of the world. And uh, mm. and and of course, you find that uh, that uh, that Bhutan is right in the middle of it. And yeah. Chinese government has not succeeded to the extent that it has in many other parts of the world in uh, getting a foothold in Bhutan, because mm. uh, Bhutanese still remain very loyal to Indians and very, very conscious of the role that India has played in, uh, in, 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 in its development. Well, and also, I imagine, very conscious of the, um, the situation of their co-religionists across the border in Tibet. Well, that is true as well. But uh, at the same time, I mean, that is complicated too because there is a, quite a bit of tension between, between. Hindus and, uh, and, and Buddhists, you know. Mm -hmm. And in, in so far as India becomes more and more Hindu, you know, that, that alarms uh, uh, many, many Bhutanese who, who say that, uh, you know, this is not the India that we signed up to, you know. <laughs> and right. as a result, uh, India has to play its cards very, very carefully with regard to Bhutan, because there is absolutely no doubt that China is there snooping and trying mm. to make sure that it... Uh, has some degree of influence, uh, 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 not least because uh, because 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 of Tibet. Uh, but one of the reasons why it hasn't actually been more interventionist in Bhutan is because uh, they, uh, they they want to keep the Bhutanese Bhutanese um, Buddhism as being separate from Tibetan Buddhism. Okay, mm. they do not want to see those that area become religiously integrated, if you like. Mm, mm, okay. Mm. So as a result, they have they there's a there's a there's a desire to keep a kind of a schism between um and the, the role of Dalai Lama is very interesting. Dalai Lama is uh, uh, is of course it's his brand of Buddhism that is practiced in Bhutan, but uh, there is also tension between the king of Bhutan and Dalai Lama. So as yes. a result Dalai Lama doesn't go there all that often. And according to some people that I've interviewed, he has never been to Bhutan. Yes, I, well, I'm not aware that he's ever been to Bhutan. And of course, historically, I mean, Bhutan's existence as an independent kingdom owes something to the machinations of the, of the British in that region and, and their sort of uh, aspirations to extend their influence over Tibet and to sort of split off places yeah. like... Um, but at the same time, Ed, uh, Bhutan was never conquered by, it was regarded as a, a principality, uh, you know, which was influenced yeah. by the British. But uh, the direct ownership of Bhutan was never included in the imperial Victorian uh, conception of, uh, of, no. of India. 
No, no, but the um, the independence of Bhutan uh, today, as uh, in the past, you know, under the during the the period of British dominance in South Asia, is basically a story of, I suppose, Bhutan playing off these massive powers on either side. So before it was the British and. Uh, I look at Chinese it like uh, like Indian. some of the Rajasthani princes, you mm. know, and their territories, how they were able to keep control of those without uh, having the British intervene in their daily life in a daily in a regular basis. Or Nizam of Hyderabad is another one, you know. Um, the, it it was except uh, uh, the taxation regime never applied to mm. Bhutan in a way that it did in relation to Hyderabad or Rajasthan or, or Jaipur or Jodhpur or places like that, you know. So as a result, uh, uh, Bhutan, so there's a complicated relationship of an imperial kind. I mean, in many ways, you can absolutely and confidently argue that Bhutan was colonized, but you can equally argue that Bhutan was never colonized. <laughs> yeah, I mean, in many ways, I guess the situation that Bhutan has found itself in is analogous to well, Nepal in particular. Or, or, or Thailand. Right. Yeah, yeah, to some extent. Yeah. Um, uh, although in Nepal, what we've seen, although I, I think the balance has shifted perhaps in recent years, yeah. but the, but we had we, we did see a period in which Chinese influence has been very extensive. Very in, extensive. In and uh, and I think I think British were much more involved in Nepal than they were in Bhutan. And uh, mm. that's where the Gurkhas came from. Mm. Yeah. Sure. You know, with all their loyalty and all those other things. Yeah. So, I mean, to go back to the sort of story of education. Education. Bhutan, right. I mean, <laughs> well, I mean, so Bhutan's strategic position, I think, is 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 relevant to an understanding of where the resources were coming from. Sure to sort of pay for the the expansion of the education system. Although we should say that apart from, you know, donations from India or, or subsidies from outside, uh, Bhutan has also developed a, a highly profitable hydroelectric um, it has. sector. Mm-hmm. And, and apart from money from tourism and yeah. uh, highly regulated tourism. And so mm-hmm. there are substantial... There's substantial income coming. There to are that. there are income streams, but they're mm. not very well distributed. I haven't looked at mm. the latest figures on Gini index, but I don't think Bhutan is very high up. No, in the, no. You know, you know. Um, education is really interesting. So the story that I was telling, so it started off in the 1960s with their five-year plans, in a bit like India, okay? And the first five-year plan established lots of schools and so on, and then the number of schools grew, and now it's almost like universal education system. However, uh, and highly influenced by Indian 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 system of education. So year 12 and year uh, 10 examinations were conducted from Delhi until very recently. Okay, oh. not from not from Thimpu, um, uh, the capital. Um, so, but in the in the in when the new uh, in the, in two thousand and seven, uh, the new uh, the old king, the king's father, Jigme Khasa's father, Jigme uh, father Wangchup's father, Wangchu Senior, decided that India uh, Bhutan needed to become a a constitutional monarchy with its mm-hmm. own parliamentary system it needed to democratize uh, despite the fact that it only had a population of uh, uh, now as it happened in 2007 when this happened uh, something of the order of 80 percent of the people did not want to become a a, a constitutional monarchy the, and and a, and a parliamentary democracy they would have preferred for the direct rule of the monarchy okay but he still continues to be hugely influential and parliament is in fact uh, almost an extension of the of the of the royal uh, royal household than it is a representative people it's changing but changing very slowly but in 2007 the king decided with all this idea about uh, growth happiness and all those sort of things they decided that we have a system that actually produces desperately unhappy people we cannot have a country defined by happiness, which has an educational system, which is as bad as this is. And not only that, we needed to develop our own system. We needed to have our own teachers. We needed to cut the Gordian knot with mm-hmm. uh, India, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So that's where major reforms started, okay, that I have become part of. Um, in, in, uh, but uh, the, 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 
the ministry, the schools, the teachers' colleges resisted this quite a lot, you know. And uh, our 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 other guest would have said a little bit more about that. Um, yeah, so perhaps I should explain. I mean, we, we we so the two of us who've actually neither of us have actually ever been to Nepal, but uh, sorry to oh, Bhutan. Bhutan. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, but we were planning to have this conversation with a Bhutanese uh, yeah. scholar, scholar, specialist on education, but sadly he's not able to. To, yeah. to join. Well, anyway, I mean, uh, the, so basically, um, it was resisted. So the queen, uh, king, came up with a brilliant idea. He basically, he said, "Look, uh, uh, if I'm going to rely upon uh, uh, reforming uh, Bhutanese educational system uh, through the agency of uh, our teachers' colleges and our ministry, we are going to get nowhere. And what we need is actually a system." which is run directly out of the Royal Secretariat, okay? That is paid by Royal Secretary. In other words, a parallel education system. So he created in 2012, a academy called the Royal Academy of Bhutan. Okay, the Royal Academy of Bhutan, very close to the airport uh, of Bhutan in Paro, uh, you know, in the second largest city of Bhutan, very close to that. Close and to the airport this, so that he can fly foreign experts in and out. <laughs> Well, partly, not really, but uh, that's where the land was and all those sort of things. Oh, okay. you know? And basically, he got a, a very famous Indian uh, uh, reformer of education from Delhi, who was known to be very experimental and very interesting in promoting his ideas. His name is Arun Kumar. Arun Kumar had a school that he ran in, in, uh, in Delhi, which was regarded as one of the most progressive and most uh, interesting school in Delhi. And he went to this person and sort of saying, I would like you to come and establish. So despite the fact that it was Indian, he was not committed to the traditional Indian, uh, Indian, Indian, Indian modalities. You know, I would like you to come and uh, start off a school for me that experiments with whole range of ideas and i am going to give you carte blanche to come up with novel and innovative ideas and we will you will develop a particular program and if the program in a period of 6 or 7 years succeeds and if everyone regards it as having done good things then we will work on a project to transition that particular philosophy of education that you articulate to the rest of the school, but slowly. So we are not going to pick a fight with the ministry. We're not going to pick a fight with, uh, with, uh, with teachers' colleges, but we are going to actually establish a small boutique experiment, if you like. Uh, all right? Pilot um, project. <laughs> pilot project. Yeah. And if it works, then it works. Okay. So I came in uh, eight years after the project had been going, okay? Almost at the time when the first cohort of the students were about to go and do their year 12 examination, final year examination. So, so they what, had six, what, year was, what year was that? That was 2021, okay? Right. So basically the school had... Uh, now he did something, Arun Kumar did something really interesting. He, he, he traveled for six months, community after community, almost like a Gandhian experiment of going to every part of Bhutan. <laughs> it only took him six months and consulted very widely. And people came up with three things. They're sort of saying the system that exists is, uh, is based on principles of meritocracy, but uh, it is not producing meritocracy. We still got 30% unemployment and mm. people who've got good connections still get the jobs. We don't, you know. Mm. So basically meritocracy is not working. Um, so I'm saying our own traditions and our religious and cultural traditions are being sidelined. And uh, we are not preparing people for the kind of futures, futures of work that uh, the kids require. So those were the three things that he came up with. Mm. And he decided that the major thing that he needed to work on was the Indian system of education that Bhutan had inherited was largely predicated on paying a great deal of attention to what he called cerebral matters, cognitive matters, mm. knowledge, if you like, mm. uh, rote learning, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. And that had to break somehow. So he came up with the idea of five areas of development that every student had to be taught to in and, and, and developed and developed towards. And the three areas or five areas of development he identified were the following. Okay. 
Cerebral was still important, mm. but so was physical, you know, mountaineering, bushwalking, et cetera, et cetera. Um, yeah. Emotional development. Mm. Uh, so cerebral development, uh, uh, physical development, emotional development, spiritual development as a way of bringing in Buddhism and Bhutan mm. Bhutanese tradition into the school. And mm. the fifth one was social development. And social development was also the ethical development. Okay, so five different dimensions uh, of education. So basically, he tried to construct a curriculum and a mode of teaching that was centered around equal attention being paid to those five areas of development from the very beginning. Okay, from the very, very beginning. But as the students go over, then the balances might shift so that the cerebral, as you're approaching, if you like, year 12, mm. may become more important and the other things less so. But in the earlier years, as far as possible, the five areas of developments were going to be given equal amount of uh, emphasis. On mm. And that's basically what he, uh, what he developed. So the teachers who were employed, from from some from overseas, but mostly from Bhutan, okay, who actually were also dissatisfied with the existing system of education, tried to develop a particular way. Of, they did a huge amount of work searching around the world and trying to get as many ideas as they possibly could. Um, and they had lots of overseas people. So their team from Oxford, for example, came there to give them advice on on, on right. how to do um, uh, how to how to reframe their curriculum. The thing was that the ministry's curriculum was totally irrelevant to this school because the king had given the school the permission that you don't have to follow the Bhutanese curriculum. You can develop your own curriculum, mm. okay? And as a result, this curriculum was... But I insist that you prepare students in such a way that they are so well prepared that in year 10 and 12 examination that they will take, they will nevertheless perform equally well, if not better. So, so, so the, the, I mean... The curriculum you're describing is the curriculum basically for this experimental school. And right. the, but the students graduating from that eventually were still destined to take the um, that's right. final exams that all Bhutanese students... That, that's right. As a way of showing that uh, despite the emphasis on all other dimensions of the human development, it is possible to develop uh, uh, people sufficiently well-versed and sufficiently well motivated to work on themselves in self-regulated ways to be able to do as well, if not better, than other students who have been, if you like, drilled into uh, and prepared for those examinations. In other words, if you give students agency and autonomy and mm. prepare them as well-rounded people, then they will succeed in whatever examination you set them. OK, mm. uh, they find out what this examination requires and they will prepare for it mm. Uh, mm. accordingly. And as a result, the school was going to be a, 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 a starting from year seven to year 12, not primary school. So secondary secondary school, basically the three stages of it. And uh, the kids will come from uh, uh, from the 24 Zonkas, the districts in um, in. Uh, so basically three students, uh, no, four students from each place. Two of those students will come with on merit, okay, uh, on mm. year six results. Mm. Uh, but two students will be nominated by the district uh, manager or district director uh, as as kids or from severely disadvantaged background, you know, uh, broken families, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, who will be nominated by the zonka. okay, to come to the school. So the school will have class diversity, if you like. Okay. Right. Uh, that, that's the and they will all come to the same location from all parts of Bhutan into this school, which was going to be a, which is now a boarding school. Most schools in most secondary schools in Bhutan are boarding schools, by the way, mm. because people come from all over the place. Well, yeah, but, okay. uh, because of the difficulty of traveling around the country. That's right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, uh, so I mean, was this school? considered to have succeed in the you know the the the, the well, aim that you've described well the king certainly thinks so the ministry has been persuaded that it has succeeded so the first round of results that came out 
just before the 21 speech that we were talking about earlier on, you yeah. know, showed that uh, these students uh, did, in fact, uh, not marginally but better, but significantly better than the mm. local students. Okay. So as a result, they were able to sort of saying it is possible to develop a system that is much more broad ranging and still do well in the traditional examination. The idea was that traditional examination will itself change over period once you have persuaded the ministry and the two colleges uh, that uh, that is possible to prepare students right. for those right. examinations. Then you can go in at the second stage and third stage yeah. and sort of saying, look, this examination system that you've got can be much more broad ranging, reflecting the five areas of development. Right. So... As you say, I mean, the ministry has proclaimed this experiment to be a success. Uh, I but, think they have got no choice, actually, yeah. because the king says it's success. Well, I mean, so much has been invested in this politically right. and perhaps financially and in other ways that Absolutely. Yeah, it's difficult Absolutely. to say, and, oh, dear. And, and, yeah. and Arun himself has actually used global expertise in a very, very strategically clever for, clever ways. So he's invited people to visit it from Harvard and from University of Jerusalem. From oh, and Oxford, University, as you said. Oxford, Melbourne. Um, mm. And it is now regarded by a Finnish organization called 100, uh, with the ED at the end rather than 100. Have a look at it. It basically nominates 100 top innovative schools in the world. And right. uh, and and this particular experiment, the Royal Academy, is one of those hundred schools. Mm. So so basically, the global prestige of this experiment is undeniably fairly well marshaled, yeah. Yeah. managed, manicured, if you like, yeah. <laughs> to make yeah. sure that uh, that the, the 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 ministry types cannot say that this is not as this has. Okay, not then, puzzle. What's the catch? What's the flaw? Then in the in the claims that are made for the success, well, floor, floor, or the, or the, or the really... replicability of the success. Well, it, I think is... that's the problem. So yeah. basically, three years ago, and that's where I was brought in. They mm. were about to think about it's uh, it's uh, it's uh, it's a dissemination across. Mm. Uh, they decided to do it with twenty two schools rather than four hundred schools. Okay, and then do another twenty schools, then another twenty schools. Right. They also it. brought in for six months to the. To the, to the Royal Academy itself, okay, 65 teachers who had graduated from the two colleges to be given, if you like, re-education program. <laughs> right, okay. retraining, retread. Retrain yeah. to yeah. go to there. Yeah. Now, this is turning out to be a very experiment experiment. And of course, just about all the resources that, uh, that uh, could be found were found for the Royal Academy. Mm. Uh, the the government does not have the capacity to provide the same amount of resources. So every time you spread it out, schools. you dilute the concentration of Absolutely. these resources. And also, there are some traditional teachers who resist it, you know, and it's very difficult. So the experiment has not actually evaporated. But I think uh, the king has given this experiment a number of years to keep on trying and keep on thinking about new things. Mm. So at the moment, the challenge that I have been given is to come up with original and new ideas as mm. to how uh, scaling up has been able to be done in other places mm. in ways that uh, meets the meets the meets the challenges that you're talking about. That's, that's very are, interesting. I mean, I. I I I want to ask you a question that relates to something that I've been wondering about a lot lately, which is that, you know, wherever we look in the world today, it seems that, you know, huge expectations are placed on educational reform to sort yeah. of transform society and, you know, solve a range of social problems that, you know, yeah. if, if, if we hear the word transformation itself coupled with discussions of education more and more. Um but this rests on the assumption, I think, that you can achieve desired transformations through simply focusing on the supply side of education. You know, you 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 change pedagogy, you change, you try to change the 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 content matter of examinations, examination syllabuses. Uh, but I'm I I wonder how much or how far 
any transformation can proceed that's focusing just on what's happening in schools or just on the curriculum or on trying to train teachers. Because in a society like Bhutan, I mean, very much like India um, or, or and many other societies, it's the demand for education, the competitiveness within society, the the insecurity that the economic insecurity that families feel, uh, uh, which in Bhutan, as in much of South Asia, expresses itself in a sort of desperate de- uh, demand for uh, or desire for. Uh, state employment, sure, sure. as as yeah, a yeah. sort of you know the, the the classic sort of iron rice bowl, the sort of guarantee of security. You know, this is what's driving the competitiveness and driving the very sort of narrow exam focus uh, of studies. Well, the narrow exam focus is continuing. Okay, mm-hmm. um, uh, and uh, but the but but they are actually thinking about. How you can make it less significant? Okay, mm. so they're they're really giving it a great deal of. Uh, well, well, that that must surely involve somehow reducing the stakes that are. That, that's that right. But uh, but, but so far they have had very little difficulty, because uh, not only the kids coming out of Royal Academy, with an award that is now called Bhutan Baccalaureate. Okay, mm-hmm. so basically, graduates of the Royal Academy get two awards. Okay, two certificates. They get the state certificate of completion of year twelve. Okay, mm-hmm. higher education or higher school certificate, and they get a Bhutan Baccalaureate. Mm-hmm. So, in other words, when they go to an employer, they go with two qualifications rather than one qualification. Right. They've got gold-plated credentials. And gold-plated. So basically they're sort of saying, I have my, my average score has been 85% in state examination, but here is a portrait that the school has provided me of my capabilities. Mm. Okay. Uh, and this suggests what I did while I was at school. Okay. Mm. What are the kind of things that I was encouraged to do and that I have learned to do? I mean, and as a result, uh, I think uh, the employers are reasonably happy with the products of the Royal Academy. But that's one school. They, that's one, one school. school. That's right. That's what I was going to say. That was my next sentence. But whether they'll be happy with the 22 or 400 schools remains to be seen. And that and that, that's actually basically what the school uh, and the whole project is currently struggling with. You know, the, the, I mean, it is certainly true that the students that I interview at, uh, from Bhutan Baccalaureate, okay, and quite often randomly so, okay, mm. because they give me a list of the class role, and I sort of saying, I'll we'll t- pick this one, we'll pick this one. Mm. Uh, yeah. Very articulate, mm. really confident kids, you mm. know, uh, and many of them come from desperately poor background, desperately mm. poor background from very remote parts. So, uh, and uh, and I have got to tell you that I am actually impressed. And then I interview people from other schools and uh, they can barely put sentences together. Yeah. yeah. You know, so there is something that is happening that we need to keep an eye on. But I'm a cynic like uh, like you are, I think. <laughs> you know. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> There's, uh, I mean, of course, the 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 sixty million dollar question, or well, I suppose there's been inflation since that phrase was coined. Yeah, the sixty exactly. billion dollar question is, yeah. you know, can we um, roll this out across four hundred schools or however many well, high schools uh, there are in well, Bhutan I mean, with with a prospect of success? Well, the assumption was that twenty two schools will uh, have in it the next out. phase, in in the current phase. Oh, the okay. next phase next phase was due to start next year. Okay, right. Uh, because three years have already passed, you know, yeah. and they have found that uh, the success in the twenty-two schools has not as been as great, and as a result, they will hold off in introducing it to the next twenty-two schools. Right, and okay. is that as you were suggesting earlier, basically because they they can't um, they 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 can't devote the same level of resources. Absolutely, and <laughs> and also that uh, that the two years of experimentation needs a little more work, okay. because with the with the one school it was how many years of experimentation? Well, about uh, about ten years ten. basically. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's right. So basically, the idea is to actually sort of roll it out a little more slowly than than might be. Uh, I mean, uh, it really is quite an interesting experiment, and they're thinking mm. very seriously. Mm. Um, uh, and uh, I have to say that uh, the kids have. Uh, 
degree of confidence that uh, I don't find in others. And the teachers have a degree of confidence. The other thing is, of course, teachers are very carefully selected. Okay, yep. and that is not the case with the other 22 schools. Mm. Uh, of Let course, alone the, the, conversa yeah. the conversations that are now taking place between the school and the and the and the and the and the, and the, and the two teachers college, okay, is a very serious one. Okay, where um, uh, the teachers college is, uh, think that there is something interesting, but uh, they believe that many of the things that are being tried out at the Royal Academy, they have already already. Uh, doing, you know, mm. they're already committed to those things, you know. Mm. Uh, they don't say it's five areas of development, but how can you not be interested in emotional development? How can you not be interested mm. in spiritual development? You know, that kind of stuff. They're sort of saying, we're already doing that. So, mm. you know, I mean, uh, uh, but, uh, but, uh, but, uh, but, uh, but, the, but, the, but the Arun Kumar saying, no, no, there's much more to be done at the level of teacher preparation. Yeah, okay. Uh, and and that that's creating a trouble to, uh, issue too. So at the moment there is a kind of a like a not quite a standoff, but uh, but there is no kind of uh, agreement that has been struck between the colleges and perhaps to the ministry as well as to how to roll it out uh, yeah. much more effectively. That involves the ministry in changing its curriculum and its mm. uh, and its uh, and its uh, examination system and the colleges to change its bed system mm. Mm. yeah so you know perhaps it's wrong for us to be too cynical uh, about a project that is still sort of in 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 progress but we can you well, know, certainly see difficulties in but yeah, uh, but you know it. i i go a little further than that mm. i don't think it's a failed project <laughs> mm. you know i th i think it has already shown some uh, some successes Mm. That uh, we cannot uh, completely ignore. Otherwise, our our level of doubt about educational reform globally mm. will uh, ensure that uh, it is almost impossible for us to regard any reform as as successful. Doesn't matter where they take place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, certainly, what you describe of this this school, the the Royal Academy, and and the the sort of philosophy the Bhutan Baccalaureate. It. Yeah, and the Bhutan Baccalaureate. I mean, uh, that does. That, that those are models i think that to many people will sound worthwhile and well um, but, uh, but you know I've, but... I've, I've, I've described the, some very very basics there is much more details that i could provide you know that uh, shows a number of other strategies that they have adopted that have been mm. quite helpful uh, mm. and quite useful so within the school they've developed a research center for example within the school they've developed a teacher development center and mm. they have made sure that every teacher gets an opportunity to develop on the job so to speak with mm. action research projects and all those sort of things so there is there there is quite a lot done in relation to uh, extra extra school activities like uh, mm. hikes and monasteries and all those sort of things. Mm. And there is an emphasis paid on bringing uh, seven gifts every semester you come back from your neighborhood, you know, mm. sort of saying, my community is doing this and I would like to tell you about it. Almost like show and tell, you know, <laughs> songs, the foods, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. There is a huge amount of emphasis on trying to uh, make sure that small groups of students across the age seven to twelve, okay, uh, have one uh, mentor, teacher mentor, and they right. meet every week, you know, for an hour and a half and cook together on the right. Saturday. Saturday, Saturday, Saturday lunchtime, you know, mm. and uh, and hang out together. So the older cooked kids take responsibility for the younger kids. So there's quite a lot. So there are all there's a huge amount on what they call driving every person, including teachers and including the principal and certainly the student to do a regular roadmap of mm. where where it is that they want to do go mm. and what it is that uh, they would like to work on that is uh, 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 more than the school was able to offer them in the first place. Mm. Um, there's a huge amount of uh, uh, emphasis on using technology and uh, various uh, resources that are available on YouTube, for example. Yeah. Um, they're trying to develop a major um, coordinating e-governance system, mm. uh, you know, in order to make sure that every little comment that is made is kind of centralized and given to the next person. So uh, lots of neoliberal reforms, but lots of other reforms as well.
Mm, mm. I mean, it's a very hybridized program. Yeah. So, I mean, what one question is: Are they going to be able to adapt the examination system and yeah. find a way of addressing the sort of pathologies of credentialism, competitive credentialism, in a yeah. way that allows some of the um, mm. uh, the reforms that are addressing aspects of education that that aren't currently covered by yeah. assessment? Uh, mm-hmm. allows them to flourish, allows people, you know, allows for the devotion of significant time. But and the energy. point that they're making is, uh, uh, you know, many very progressive reforms have wanted to do away with the pr- credentialism, okay, mm-hmm. and with external examination system. Well, we're not interested, we no. are not interested in doing that, mm-hmm. but we are interested in changing the system so that kids are prepared in such ways that they can themselves prepare themselves for those external examinations while they're in process of changing. Mm, mm. Can you see what I'm trying to say? So they're not actually denying the premise the, of the importance that parents and communities and, and governments and, uh, and employers attach to credentialism. No, no, no. But they're saying we can't actually become, uh, uh, we, we can't actually assume that we can't reform while we wait for the credentialism to disappear. No, no. I see. I mean, w- w- one one final uh, um, question relates to. I mean, one thing that you were just mentioning: um, technology. Yeah. Um, uh, I, I mean, I, I I believe that the the COVID pandemic had mm-hmm. quite a, a severe impact on Bhutan sure. and school closures, as it did across South Asia. Yeah. Uh, and that's one thing that has perhaps driven the emphasis, which there seems to be in the uh, education reform debate, on the significance of technology. Absolutely. Well, the other thing is that there is a mentor actually regularly reports to the parents. Mm. And some of the parents are in very, very remote parts and do not have a computer. So basically what is being done is to give them cheap Nokias so at least uh, you can talk to them on telephone, okay? Right. Um, so as a result, uh, they're trying to actually use technologies at various level, gradation mm. levels, you know, mm. from very sophisticated iPhones mm. in Temple to very, very basic uh, uh, $20, uh, $20 um, Nokia phone, you know, mm. or some Indian phone, uh, Infosys or something like that, you know? Uh, so as a result, uh, uh, the parents are, are expected to have a telephone at least, uh, mm-hmm. uh, which uh, which can be which can be used used to con- remain in contact. So com- I think I think they're thinking about um, uh, technology in fairly novel and fairly interesting ways. You know, um, uh, uh, the, the 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 trouble that I have actually is uh, at the moment these people who are there. Uh, have been with the school for the, some of the leading people have been there for five, ten years. Mm. Succession. Yeah. When the principal, who is quite charismatic, mm. Arun Kumar, leaves. Oh, the, the principal of the Royal Academy specifically. The Royal Academy. Yeah. You know, mm. the director, the architect of Bhutan Bachelorette yeah. leaves. Then, then what? Yes. Yes. Okay, and those are the questions that uh, they challenge me to think about. So the way that they have used me is really quite interesting. They're sort of saying, "We've got a problem. We don't want to admit it to other people, but we'll admit it to you." Can you can you think about what the possibilities are from what you have seen in your peripatetic uh, professorial uh, position? <laughs> right. Can you, so so yeah. I'm actually bringing the global voices of yeah. uh, of uh, of various kinds, you know, and uh, they they seem to find. And I write uh, regular papers that uh, that they don't publicize and they just don't distribute widely. So mm. I mean, I've written something like thirty papers altogether, but they have always been written 
not for general consumption, but for the consumption of uh, the school itself. Right. And you'll be going there in August to... For the very first time. To to meet some of these people and... uh, Meet some of these people for the first time. I mean, it may be that I will develop a very, very different uh, uh, set of perceptions. Uh, Mm. um, My assessment will change quite dramatically, and I'm happy to talk to you and let you know whether they have. But I suspect that uh, I'm going to be fairly well-managed. Yes, well, probably (laughs) in a 10-day trip. Uh, I mean, one, so, well, yeah, thanks. Thanks very much indeed. I mean, one thing we haven't discussed, uh, which we were were talking about a little bit when we chatted earlier was the, um, the substantial Nepali minority in and educational issues affecting them. I mean, we've already been discussing for, I think, over an hour. So perhaps we should park that issue. Park that, yeah. I think so. I mean, and I have to say, I'm not entirely confident in Mm. on being able to talk about uh, Mm. that. I know that there is uh, a degree of, uh, of, uh, not conflict, but uh, distrust, uh, you know, uh, between the two communities and the Nepalese communities does feel marginalized mm. but the extent to which this is true and how it plays out in everyday life is uh, is something that uh, um i'm going to have to ask a few questions about yeah well thanks very much that's really really fascinating thanks all right. uh, okay. yeah all right okay nice talking to you yeah great Bye. thank you